Good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. Happy second week of Advent. Let's do this. As, as you get to your seats, can you stand together as we begin? We said this last week that as we're going to kind of skip around a little bit over the next couple of weeks in, in our catechism questions. So we're going to be in number 20 this week. The question is this, as we're in the Advent season, and this is an important question that we should know and that we should celebrate. Who is the Redeemer? Who is the Redeemer? The answer is on our screen. Can you say this with us? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. Church, hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 40 today. These are comforting words. And also, it draws us to what we should be about is the glory of God on display. Verses 1 through 11, hear these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all is beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the, the word of our God will stand forever. These last couple of verses, can we say this out loud as it's on the screen? Verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. 
and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Behold, the Lord our God comes with might. He will come and see about his people. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather us up. Let's worship the Lord this morning. Let's behold him in his glory and majesty. Sing us together. Who has held God's number, every grain of sand. Kings and nations tremble at His voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God, seated on His throne. Come, let us
things that we, we do in this season as, we, uh, as we're in Advent. We were, the theme of week one was hope. The, we, the theme of this week is peace, the, the peace that Christ has brought to us. So the Robertsons, they're going to come and read Psalm 85 over us this morning. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You withdrew all your wrath. And, sorry, skipping ahead. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Would you pray with me this morning? Let's thank the Lord for the peace that he brings. Jesus, we thank you that this wall of hostility has been broken down. That righteousness and peace kiss each other. That you've come to bring peace to your people. But also in that passage it says, let us not return to our folly. And so as we read passages like that, Lord, may that not be said of us that we return to our former way of life, but that as we see the peace that you have brought, that you have come and made a way, you have made our path straight, Lord, that we would see your goodness and your compassion and your mercy, Lord, and that we would never look anywhere else. Lord, as we have pledged our lives and, and our families to serving the King, Lord, that this is our life now. Lord, that we are about the King's delights, the King's work. Lord, knowing that 
this king has brought peace to us that is eternal and everlasting. Lord, in a way that we could never hope to do within ourselves. God and sinners reconciled. That is what we celebrate this morning. So we continue to worship you this morning, Jesus. Let's lift our voices and sing the song that we all know so well. Hark the herald angels sing.
is a truth older than the ages. There is a promise of things yet to come. There is one born for our salvation, Jesus. There is a light that overwhelms the darkness. There is a kingdom that forever reigns. There is freedom from the chains that bind us. Jesus is who walks, who walks on the waters, who speaks to the sea, who stands in the fire beside me. He rose like a lion, he bled as the lamb, he carries my There is a name I call in times of trouble. There is a soul that comforts in the night. There is a voice that calms the storm that rages. He is like a lion he bled as the lamb he carries my healing in his hand Jesus Messiah my Savior there is power in your name you're my rock my Redeemer, there is power in your name, in your name. You walk on the waters, you speak to the sea, you stand in the fire beside me. You roll like a lion, you bled as the lamb, you carry my healing in your hands. God, you walk on the water, you speak to the sea, you stand in the fire beside me. You roll like a lion, you bled as the lamb, Carry my healing in your hands, Jesus. There is no one like you, Jesus. There is no one like you, Jesus. surrounded the throne 
pray that we would see, we would encounter, and that we would respond to your glory that you put on display. Lord, that we would not take your glory lightly. Lord, with that, we would see the, the weight of glory, but also the or the freedom that your glory gives to us. Lord, may we not be stealers of your glory. May we not hoard glory for ourselves, but see glory in its rightful place, which is yours totally, completely. We love you, Jesus. Thank you just for being with us today, for being present in our midst, or for hearing our prayers and our, and our singing on our hearts. Lord, thank you that you hear us. Lord, just speak to us out of chapter two of Ruth today. Do a work within us. Lord, change us in ways that we don't even realize that we're being changed. But just do those things. We, we ask, we need that lead for that. Transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, it is ages, it's the older ages, correct? Ages 7 through 10. Ages 7 through 10 can be dismissed. Good morning. Wow. It's good to be back. 
Uh, I'm really grateful to Chris and to John for, uh, for filling the pulpit in my absence and, uh, and doing a great job filling the pulpit in my absence. Uh, we are back, uh, no worse for the wear as far as we can tell, uh, but it was quite a trip. Uh, to give you an idea of the trip, I took all four of our kids to Dollywood by myself in the rain. <laughs> that is, in a nutshell, that is the way the trip went. And everything that you would imagine that to be, it was. <clears throat> and we came home in two hours. We did not stay. Okay. So, uh, it's good to be back. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. So if you, if you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you would like an outline, I've got those in the back as well if you're the note-taking sort. Last week, John Willie, the pastor, our future pastor at Alpine First Baptist Church, did an excellent job setting Ruth in its historical and literary context as well as showing us how two widows returned to the little town of Bethlehem in humble, desperate circumstances. And at the end of chapter one, the only thing Naomi seems to have going for her is a daughter-in-law who has forsaken her own parents, her own people, her own land, and her own God, taking upon herself the concerns and care of her mother-in-law and the worship of her mother-in-law's God. And as we're going to see in time... It was perhaps the best decision that she ever made, and Naomi maybe didn't have it quite so bad as she thought. Ruth's decision, her words at the end of chapter one represent faith. They're an act of faith. And if you know anything about the real, true, and living God, the God of the Bible, you know that he responds to faith. Now, any honest person would admit that in hard circumstances, such as Ruth's and Naomi's, it is difficult to see God's grace. But Ruth chapter 2 is a story of grace abounding in the house of bread. So stand with me and let's read all of Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read Ruth 2 verses 1 through 23 together this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And, he said to her, and she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, 
Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and mother and native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for preserving this chapter of your word as part of the entirety of your word. May my words be faithful to the original intent of what the author wrote. And in so doing, I pray that your voice would speak and that you would show us your abundant, great, matchless, infinite, marvelous grace and that our hearts would be led to worship you, even in the midst of difficulties, that we would worship you and take heart and be encouraged. Sovereign Spirit of God, you blow where you wish. And so we are dependent upon you to do a work, and we ask that you would God, give us the right preaching of your word always and use it to shape your church 
unto eternity. Give us focus and attention, wisdom that we need. And let Christ be honored in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. The first thing I want you to notice is uh, the grace of direction. That comes from verses 1 through 4, 1 through 7, I'm sorry. The grace of direction. If you've never read this story and are just now coming to chapter 2, from chapter 1, you're going to be thinking, what has Naomi's relative Boaz to do with any of this? Right? Verse 1 seems so out of place. This, this terrible thing has befallen this family in Moab. Right? There was a famine. They left. They, they went where they maybe shouldn't have They stayed too long and everybody died. And Naomi is destitute and is planning to return. And she has what one commentator calls this pesky daughter-in-law who just won't go away. Hard as she tries. And they come back and that's where it ends. And, And she's having a pity party at the end saying, don't even call me by my name. Call me Mara which means bitterness, because the Lord, the Almighty, has dealt bitterly with me. And then all of a sudden, now there was in the country of Israel, in the town of Bethlehem, a man named Boaz. What? Like you're just wondering, what does that have to do with any of the tragedy of chapter one? And the answer is everything, right? It's like when uh, you watch a really good movie and they place a detail toward the beginning that doesn't seem that important, but in the end, it actually changes the whole plot and it was there all along. And so this is setting you up to expect something from this guy. God doesn't waste words. If he says, now there was a man named Boaz, that guy's probably gonna be kind of important. And guess what? He really, really is. Now we've already read chapter two, so we kind of see, we begin to see how important he is. Um, But we're also told an important detail about this man in verse 1. And it's this. He was a worthy man. Now, this word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to mean valiant, strong, mighty, and able. Um, In other words, what's being said of him is he's a good man, a man of faith. He is a man of strength in his conviction and character. This is the kind of man. He is a worthy man. Now we see this, uh, if it, if, even if we weren't told this, we actually see it play out, don't we? We, we see uh, that he's a worthy man. We see this by the first recorded word that he speaks. Look at what he says, the first thing that he says. Right? Just, I want you to think about These would not have been the first words Boaz ever said in his life. He didn't just start talking this time, right? So of all of the words that you could record about a person, if you're the biblical author and you're you're sifting through what you know of Boaz's life, there's all kinds. You You could put his first word ever there. We don't know what that was, right? You could put, like, of all the words he said that day, he could have chosen anything, But the very first word the biblical author chooses to preserve 
out of his mouth is Yahweh. Right? That's not just in the English. I just made sure. I looked back in the Hebrew just to make sure I wasn't wrong. And in the Hebrew, which actually reads right to left, not left to right, the first word on the right out of his mouth, Yahweh. The covenant name of Israel's God. Here, we're told, implicitly, is a man of faith. And he invokes the name, the covenant name of Israel's God in a blessing of sorts to his employees. So we're shown, he says, the Lord, Yahweh be with you. And they respond, Yahweh bless you. So here's a man we're, we're shown who is worthy by what he says and by whom he says it to. I realized that was the wrong way. To whom he says it, right? It's the actual way to say that. Um, and and what, what you find out is he is not a man who sees his employees, his reapers, his harvesters as mere cogs in an economic wheel. He sees them as human beings Worshippers of his God, worshipers of Yahweh, full of dignity because they bear his image. And so he doesn't just care about them as means of production. He cares about them as human beings. He cares about their spiritual well-being such that he would invoke a blessing from, Yah- from Yahweh, from Israel's God. So everything we are shown of Boaz in these first few verses demonstrates a strength of character in this man. Okay, so why does all of that matter? Right, so we're, we're introduced to Boaz and we see his strength of character and conviction just from the words that he says and the things that he does. So why does that matter now? Well, it all boils down to one word in verse three. Happened. And that word is meant to make you think. It's meant to give you pause. It's meant to provoke consideration because what is happening in chapter 2 is that from a human point of view, Ruth essentially walks and picks a field at random. And so from a human point of view, she happened to come into the field of this man. Not just any man, this man. This righteous by faith man whose first word recorded in the Bible is Yahweh. And so you're meant to say, did she really just happen to end up there? And from there, you ask more questions. Does anything random happen in God's good world? Is there such a thing as luck under the rule of a sovereign God? Or chance, or fate, or fortune, whatever, however you want to say it. Is there such a thing as that under the rule of a sovereign God? Does anything like that just happen? I mean, the answer is no. 
Those things don't just, so from a human perspective, she just so happened to walk up to a relative of Naomi's who just so happens to be a righteous man who just so happens, we find out later, to be one of the redeemers of their family. But, but you, what you see is that that's what happens at face value, at surface level, from a human perspective, but that is not what's happening from a divine perspective. What's happening is this sovereign God is ordering her steps underneath the random, aimless wandering of a Moabite widow. God is sovereignly directing her steps into the fields of Boaz. This is grace, friends. This is grace. Sovereign grace. God's sovereignty means that he oversees even the smallest details of his good world. Uh, A pastor and theologian named Paul Tripp, uh, in a sermon that I heard him preach on the book of Jonah, he said that one of his favorite examples of the sovereignty of God over the even, like there's no rogue molecule in all of creation. His favorite example of that is Jonah 4, 7, and God appointed a worm. He appointed a worm. Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord, Yahweh, establishes his steps. This is the grace of direction at work. God is directing the seemingly aimless steps of a widow into the fields of a righteous man who is going to take care of her. So the setup to chapter two goes something like this. There's a close relative of Naomi's who lives in Bethlehem. He's a just, righteous by faith sort of guy. And Ruth just happens to stumble into his field with a loose plan to scrape by on whatever she can glean provided she finds favor with the man who owns the field. But with that word happened, we see that underneath her loose plan, her aimless wandering and her seeming... uh, aimlessness, right? Israel's God sees Ruth, the former pagan idolater turned widow and worshiper, and he's directed her steps into Boaz's field. Um, But friends, this is not just to Ruth that this sort of grace abounds. If you are his, our great, gracious, and sovereign God is ordering your steps as well. Even the hard things, Even things that you would look at and say, that seems random, or that just seemed like pure luck or chance. Even things that you may have at one point in your life called luck or chance. They have all been part of his kind plan to redeem you and to demonstrate his great love for you. So he orders and directs your steps, whether you realize it or not. You are his and you are in his hand. Be encouraged. And so in verse seven, Boaz, uh, or in verse six, I'm sorry, five, whatever, five through seven, he inquires about this woman he doesn't recognize. And he finds out that this is the widow of Elimelech's son who came home with Naomi. 
excuse me. Then we move to verses 8 through 16. And what we see are, uh, or is the grace of both protection and provision. The grace of protection and provision. What becomes evident in these verses is that through Boaz, Yahweh does indeed spread his wings over Ruth and Naomi. Who Boaz even says, under whose wings they've come to take refuge, Yahweh does spread his wings over them. Let's just consider how lavish Boaz's kindness to this widow, this foreign widow is. He not only permits her to glean, but he tells her only to glean in his fields. That's verses 8 and 9. He charges his young men not to touch her, which that implies uh, either violence or violation of her person or perhaps both. Okay? Uh, if, you, if you just look at that word uh, in the original language, this is, this is what it talk, is talking about, violence or violation um, toward that person. She is a foreigner and a woman, after all. She is, uh, she is one of the most vulnerable to oppression in all of society, right? Even in Israel, foreigners who were women, who were alone, because she went by herself into the field, she would have been the most vulnerable, among the most vulnerable there. <laughs> he also encourages her faith, or encourages her for her faith, He prays Yahweh's blessing upon her as a reward for her faith. And not only that, he invites her to the table, sharing his workers' portions with her. I just want you to hear how above and beyond this goes. His only obligation to her, according to the law, is to allow her to glean at the edges of his field. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that talks about gleaning and what it is uh, and why it's there. But his only obligation to her Like he would be doing right by the law if he just allowed her to glean at the edges of his field. But he invites her to the table. He shares his laborers' portions with her and their water. And then he sends her home with leftovers. And then he actually has his young men who are reaping. He has them um, engage in what Ian Duguid in his commentary calls Uh, deliberate carelessness, right? We think, we usually think of carelessness as not deliberate, but they're supposed, like they're getting bundles, not from the edges. And he says, just make sure you drop three or four along the way so that she can pick them up easily and take them with her. Deliberately careless in their work so that she's fully provided for. And he charges them not to reproach or rebuke her. He protects her dignity. Right, so he is fully providing for and protecting her at every level, physical, emotional, from the level of human dignity, and then from a spiritual level uh, in a way that is far beyond what would or could be reasonably expected behavior toward a foreign widow. Okay. This is what you have to see here. This is abundant grace. Can I say it this way? Boaz's heart reflects the heart of God toward the outsider. He is a conduit for Yahweh's provision and protection. 
Now, God is perfectly able to feed Naomi and Ruth. He could have sent them manna. Right? Just go outside, pick it off the ground. Right? He could have sent ravens to feed them. These are things that he has done. He, he is able by himself to provide for his people. But what he more often than not does is uses others of his people to provide for his people. He uses his people to be his hands and feet toward those in need. God's grace is worked out through Boaz's generosity and it abounds toward them. May we commit ourselves to compassion and generosity toward the needs of others, especially the outcast, orphan, widow, and stranger. Right? Boaz reflects God's heart as it is revealed in Deuteronomy 10, Verses 17 through 19. I'm going to read this for you. Oh, that's Leviticus. That's not going to be what we're looking for. Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to come to Leviticus in a moment. But Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice For the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So why does God execute justice for the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner? Because those are the people in society at that time who are most vulnerable to to social oppression. And so God is their defender, God looks out for them. He cares about them. And when Boaz does this, this level of bewildering, unexpected, over-the-top, overwhelming grace, when he acts this way, he is reflecting God's heart as it is revealed by God in Deuteronomy 10. And as a matter of fact, this entire chapter and its events are built upon an Old Testament principle that captures the heart of God for the sojourner and the poor and the needy. And it's in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Now, I would encourage you to go back later today and read Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. Uh, I'm going to read part of one of the later verses. I don't have it in your... uh, uh, Let me just read 9 and 10, and then I'm just going to... I will read... Uh, another part of this as well. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Okay, like, as someone who spent a few years, who studied in college uh, economics, and then who spent some time teaching economics, let me just tell you, economics is all about efficiency. You get the most output from the least amount of inputs that you can. And so the point is, if you're going to reap your field, you're going to get every ounce of usable, sellable product that you possibly can out of the people who are working for you and out of those fields. You want to get as much as you can from it. That's called efficiency. God, because he cares about the poor, has actually divinely commanded, prohibited economic efficiency like that. This is what it says. 
You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. So that the parts that are next to the road, the parts that are next to your driveway, whatever, you don't reap all the way up there. You start at the middle, the hardest to get to, and you leave everything where it is on the edges of your field, the easiest parts to get to. Why? Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. Isn't that amazing? That God, in his law, he bakes in economic inefficiency for the sake of the poor because he loves them and cares about them. So if you happen to drop some grapes, leave them. Assume that that was a turn of events that came from the Lord as provision for the needy so that they can run behind you and have what they need. So the fact that Ruth is even able to benefit and Naomi is able to benefit from this idea of gleaning, it's a reflection of the heart of God. This is the thing that carries it along. This, this is why she ends up in Boaz's field, is the heart of God. The gracious heart of God that prohibits full efficiency. Ruth intended for them to benefit from the heart of God revealed in Leviticus 19. But what she's also benefiting from beyond her wildest expectation is a man whose heart is like God's. Namely, a heart that bursts forth with overwhelming grace and generosity. We cannot come to Ruth 2 and miss what's going on. This is abundant grace from God through Boaz to Ruth and Naomi, these destitute widows. Now, for her part, Ruth has no idea who this man is beyond having heard his name. Um, You remember, she wandered aimlessly into his field. But now she has full provision. She's got a full belly, a styrofoam clamshell plate of leftovers, an invitation to continue gleaning, as well as protection, both physical and emotional, while she does her work. And her words demonstrate that she doesn't deserve all this. She understands, I don't deserve all this. Look at what she says. Um, Verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You hear the humility in her voice. She understands she doesn't deserve this. This is over and above what could reasonably be expected, even from a law keeper in Israel. But she is grateful to have found this kind of favor in his sight, which if you read the rest of the Bible, you find out that favor comes from the Lord as well. And so she thanks him essentially in her words for comforting her and speaking to her heart, speaking kindly. The reality is, with all of this grace, she still doesn't know the full extent of God's grace toward her. But she's getting ready to. And it starts in verses 17 through 23. And I've just called this section the grace that defies calculation. So it's in these verses that Ruth and Naomi connect the dots. She sees the abundance of grace that comes home with Ruth and is also overwhelmed by that grace. Now, 
an ephah of, of, of what, is she, what, is, what is it that she has? I want to just see real quick. Barley? Okay, that's what I thought. I was going to say barley. I was going to say grain. She comes home, whatever it was, it's an ephah. Now, that may not mean a whole bunch to you, but uh, there is a, there's a commentary that I read and the author kind of updates it for us. I want you to imagine a bag of dog food. And I don't just mean like the $5 bag that you would buy at Family Dollar. It is the Sam's Club size 30 pound bag of dog food. That is one day. And you're talking, she had to get it off and then beat it out and get the little seeds out. And she filled this dog food sized bag with grain. That is more. That's more than could be expected for a day of gleaning. And that is more than they need for probably quite a a while. So you, you, you hear the astonishment in Naomi's voice. Like I, she's probably hoping just to have a small meal from what Ruth brings home. And look what she says. Her mother-in-law, verse 18, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over. So not even just the things you have to grind and make into bread. She actually has bread that she brought home. Um, and her mother-in-law said, where, where did you glean today? Like, where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So bitter Naomi sees God's abundant grace. And what does it do to her heart? It softens it. And she begins to see maybe God the Almighty has not dealt quite so bitterly with me as I thought he had. Can I tell you something that I find interesting in this? This, this is a bit of a side note. But I'm going to bring it back around. And I do think it is important. It's important for us today. And I think it's something that uh, is, could, could be borne out uh, throughout the Bible as well. Um, Naomi renamed herself. She, in, in the modern parlance, she identified herself as Mara, bitter, because the Almighty had dealt bitterly. You know who doesn't share and bow to that identity? God. Because what you read is that the biblical author does not stop calling her Naomi and begin to call her Mara. He continues to call her Naomi. Her name means pleasant. Mara means bitter. God God doesn't join her pity party that she throws for herself when she says, oh, call me Mara. And I'm not trying to make light of her situation. She has been through something terrible, like beyond terrible, unimaginable pain she's been through. And she, in the, in, in the heat of that moment of suffering, she just says, God has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me Naomi anymore. My, I don't want to hear you refer to me as pleasant. That's not who I am. I am bitter. But God doesn't share her estimation of herself. He doesn't bow to her self-identification He continues to have the biblical author call her Naomi. And so what what she calls herself does not change the truth 
about her situation and about her life. God sees the whole picture. And he knows what's coming. And as she will say in just a moment, he has not forsaken his kissed, his steadfast love and faithfulness toward the living or the dead. God knows that his steadfast love never ceases. His mercies are new every morning and they don't even stop unto death, beyond death. God continues to be faithful and to, to, to make good on his covenant promises even in death to his people. He knows He knows the end of the story. He knows where he is taking her. And it is going to be pleasant for her in the end. And he doesn't say, I know that you feel this way, so I will also call you Mara. So she finds out the man's name. Right, verse 19. The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And that's a name Naomi has heard before. She wells up now in praise because she sees that God's grace is even greater than she realized when Ruth walked in the door with a dog food bag of grain. Ruth has stumbled into a relative's field and not just a relative, a redeemer's field. Now we're going to study more about what that word redeemer means and what that concept is from the Old Testament later as we continue studying the book of Ruth. We're going to actually see some of what that means. But suffice it to say that she perceives that God has been far more gracious than either of them understood at the time. And she says... May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness, that word kindness is the word for God's covenant, steadfast love and faithfulness toward his people. Okay, this is, this is the same word that uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I, I love that book. We're, we're currently reading it for Advent right now, but it calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Right? This is what this word kindness is representing from the uh, Hebrew. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kissed has not forsaken the living or the dead. She understands. I felt like things were bitter for me, but I see, I'm beginning to see where this is going and God's kindness, his covenant faithfulness to me has not ceased. And her heart is softened. Do you hear her heart softening from her words? Hope is being renewed in the house of bread because God's grace is abounding there. And this is the gospel. This would not be the only time that events in Bethlehem, the house of bread, would renew hope for God's people. This would not be the only time that God's light would shine into the darkness in Bethlehem. This is not the last time God's people would be satisfied and filled to overflowing because of what happened in the house of bread. John talked about this last week. Christ 
is the bread of life, born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And he himself bids us come to him and eat and be satisfied to overflowing and live forever. I just want... And we're back. Okay. Y'all, it's because John preached so long last week. It's not because I've preached for 41 minutes. It's because he preached for 45 minutes. It's his fault, not mine. Okay. You could tell him I said so. Um, okay. So Christ bids us come to him and eat, be satisfied, and live forever. Let's, let's just turn quickly to John chapter 6. Because this is what we celebrate at Advent and Christmas is the fact that Jesus was born so that he could die in our place as our capital R Redeemer, buying us back from slavery to sin and bringing us into God's family. And this is what he says, John chapter six. Um, I'm gonna start in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your, father, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then it, and then it gets weird for the Jews here. I'm just gonna acknowledge that. We're gonna keep going. Then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And he keeps saying, this is, verse 58, this is not like the bread that came down from heaven that our fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. When we partake of Christ by faith, we are satisfied to overflowing and we have eternal life. Hope was renewed in Bethlehem for Naomi and Ruth and hope was renewed in Bethlehem for all of God's people when the bread of life came down from heaven so that his people could feed on him by faith, partake of him by faith and know Christ and know his eternal life always. Ian Duguid says, points out that just like Boaz doesn't just permit 
Ruth to glean in his fields, but invites her to the table. It's like that for us. God doesn't just permit us like to glean in his fields. He brings us into the family and invites us to his table. Have you, t- have you partaken of the bread of life? Are you satisfied to overflowing because of what happened in Bethlehem? Repent and believe in the bread of life and partake of him by faith. Uh, for the believer here, are you aware of God's grace towards you even in your difficulties and tragedies? Are you aware of God's direction, protection, and provision toward you? <clears throat> Do you see that God's grace toward you is simply incalculable? So, very quickly, um, something that I've been thinking about uh, as, I've, as I've been studying this is, um, and, and it, can't, it sort of occurred to me on Friday, uh, or maybe it was even yesterday, uh, I, was, I was brushing <clears throat> the hair of two of our daughters, um, and I'll just tell we should brush our daughter's hair way more often than we do. Uh, but I, I decided yesterday for one of them to, to just count the number of strokes that it took me to get from what this is to something presentable. And I, and I actually think that on this one particularly, I, I undercounted. But I'll just tell you, it was 820 brush strokes to get it from here to here. And, and, and it, it didn't even take that long. And not everyone was like a long, you know, full, like it was, a lot of it was just like tangle, 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 you know, like, but 820 strokes. But it took it from a mess to something beautiful. Because like my, my kids are beautiful. I don't care what you think. Objectively, my kids are beautiful. And it took it from this mess of hair to something beautiful. And, and this is what God is doing by his grace in you, right? I, and I, like, I am lost when it comes to, it probably wouldn't take any other person in this room 800 strokes to get to where I got. It's just, I'm bad at it. God is not bad at what he does. He is perfect in his ability to get you where he wants you to be through every part of your life, the good and the bad, the hard and the easy, right? If you asked that daughter what she would call herself in the middle of those eight, she probably would have said bitter, right? Like it wasn't a fun process, those 820 brushstrokes to get there. It wasn't all easy. Some of them were easier than others, but some of it was really difficult but the idea is we ha- there's a vision in place and there's a, pl- a plan to get from here to there. And sometimes it hurts, right? This, are you aware of God's direction, provision and protection, even in your hardships, that he is taking you from a place that maybe feels bitter, but he is bringing you to a place of beauty and pleasantness. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you feel his grace abounding toward you, even in your difficulty? Do you see his grace abounding toward you in every area of your life? We have to develop the eyes of faith to see God's grace in every circumstance. It, it, his grace toward you. Whether you understand this or not, it defies calculation. You cannot add it all together and come up with a sum. It is infinite. 
and it will continue to flow infinitely toward you for the rest of your life into eternity future. His grace defies calculation. It is incalculable. When you get a sense of that, let me just ask you to join Naomi in worshiping God for his marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Even in the midst of your most trying circumstances, worship God for his grace. Make your observance of Advent and your celebration of Christmas, make it intentionally, deliberately, explicitly something that points to the worship of God for his grace in Christ. Because grace has abounded in the house of bread, not just for Naomi and Ruth, but for you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for Uh, the time that you've given us in your word together. Thank you uh, for your grace that abounds to us. I pray that you would help us to see your grace at work in every area of our lives. And I thank you that you are perfect in your ability to get us where you want us to be. And that you will supply all of our needs according to the riches of your grace and your glory in Christ Jesus. Father, continue to work and move in us, help us, grow us. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can know the hope to which you've called us and so that we can see the the varied grace that you've bestowed on us. Let it lead us to worship you. Jesus, thank you that you were born to die so that we could live. We make this prayer in your name. Amen. So we make our approach to the Lord's table. And we've just read about Christ as the bread of life. And we've read that he calls us to eat and drink of him. And again, we believe, we know that is by faith. So we don't believe that the bread and the cup become the actual body and blood of Jesus, but by our faith in him, when we partake, when we come to the table and we partake of the bread and cup, we, by our faith, are feasting on Christ. We are acknowledging his grace toward us. This table is shouting, shouting the message to you that you could not save yourself, that you could not earn salvation from God. It had to be won and purchased for you and given to you as a gift. And here's the means. Christ's body broken instead of yours. Christ's blood shed instead of yours. The sacrifice, the perfect once for all atoning sacrifice for sin was offered. And the the offering was so good that God raised him up from the dead. He is our hope. He is our only hope. This table is for everyone who knows and believes that Jesus is our only hope. That means that you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Jesus and you are committed to walking in obedience with him. If that doesn't describe you, don't come to the table. We urge you to take Jesus instead.
but if that does describe you, we've set aside this time to examine yourselves, to ask the Lord to reveal, to search your heart and reveal sin, reveal patterns of unbelief in your heart and to forsake those, to repent anew and to believe afresh and to come and be nourished by your good shepherd at his table that he invites you to. As we gather at the table of the Lord, we remember that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for this sign of the new covenant. Let us not be found in our personal lives, in our thoughts, in our words, our deeds, or even in our corporate life as a church. Let us not be found to despise the meaning of this table, uh, but to, uh, to fully embrace it, to love it, to love Christ, to meet with him by faith as we gather together, to be nourished, to be ministered to by the Spirit of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, we believe that you are active and working among us. We pray that you would do it fully in your people, whatever work you intend. We also pray that you would open our eyes to see the abundant grace that you have lavished on us because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for this time. Please use it in your church and in our hearts. Lead us toward repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Table's open.
Pray with me. Father, thank you for the grace that is this time together to examine ourselves, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, to ask your forgiveness and pardon afresh, to see it applied to our present sins, and to remind ourselves that it will continue to be applied to our future sins. Thank you for the body and blood of Christ that cover our sins, that have canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its demands, have set us free to worship you and to be your people and to live with you always. Thank you that you are in the process of transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. And so let this moment that is purchased and upheld by Christ, let this moment also be part of that process as we eat and drink together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. He says, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. And he says, for it's often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. For our missions moment today, uh, this is the week that we have, uh, that, that in SBC Life, we are collecting the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, uh, of which every dollar given goes directly to support international missions through the IMB. Um, so it is, it is raising funds to support our missionaries that we collectively partner with other SBC churches to send across the globe upwards of four, between four and 5,000 missionaries on the field right now. Um, this is, this is one of those ways that we do it. Uh, and so um, what I want to do is I actually want to give you a chance to pray about it. If you haven't prayed about it or pray, pray for what you're going to give, if you know what you're going to give, and then um, you can just come and lay it here as, as you pray. Um, if you forgot, you can always do it later. You can give next week. You can give online. You may have already given online. That's okay. In the memo line of your check, write Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You can make it out to the church and write LMCO, or you can make it out, I think, to Lottie Moon uh, in, the, in the actual line. It's just up to you. Um, but that, all of that money will go directly toward uh, the support of our missionaries abroad. So take a moment to yourself and your families, pray about this, and then uh, just be obedient to what the Lord leads.
Father, we thank you for uh, the missionaries who are gathered, or who are sent, sorry, all around the world, um, who are who are heaven bent on making the name of Jesus known where it is not named, advancing the kingdom of God among the lost, and joining you in the work of bringing every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, gathering them around your throne to worship Christ. I pray that as a result of the efforts of the missionaries that the SBC has sent out, that there would be more people who are celebrating Advent and Christmas, who are waiting for the return of our great King, Jesus. And that they would have truly a reason to sing and to praise God. I pray that you would strengthen the hand of our missionaries in the work that they're doing. Encourage their faith. Build them up in your love. Keep them in your love. Grant them to feel the compassion and companionship of the Holy Spirit. I know that that can be lonely and it can feel dark. And I just ask that you would enlighten their eyes to see your grace abounding to them in every way. And that they would continue and not grow weary in the labor of the advance of your kingdom and the preaching of the gospel. Let churches be planted. Let lives be changed. Let disciples be made And bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Show us what we ought to give and help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Uh, let Let me run through a few announcements quickly with you. So we've we've actually had a change of plan as it relates to Christmas Eve. We were going to have a service here and then uh, in the morning and then at Alpine at night. And essentially what's happened is uh, Alpine has basically just invited us to join with them on Sunday morning and let that be our joint Christmas Eve service. So we're going we're gonna to do that. Um, and so we won't be studying Ruth 3 and 4, or Ruth 4, like we were going to that week. Um, what I'm going to try to do, and I know that you're probably going to roll your eyes, I'm going to try to do both chapters next week. So we may just, you know, bring a blanket, bring a picnic. We may be here for a while. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to do what I can to be a normal, normal service, but, but finish down the book. So if you're interested in, this is, uh, this is something, this is not an original joke of mine, but I still think it's funny. If you're interested in uh, finding out how to dress yourself up and get a man uh, come next week, and you, we'll, find, we'll find that out from the book of Ruth. Uh, okay. <clears throat> uh, and then we'll, like I said, we'll be together Christmas Eve. They, they meet at 1030. So 1030 at Alpine is where we'll be. If you come here, the door will be locked, and you'll feel left out. And then you'll remember, oh, I'm just going to be late. All right. So... Uh, tonight, Pineville Park Baptist Church, just a hop, skip, and a jump over that way across from Keys Park. 
uh, our very own Kevin Williams is going to be playing a, a Christmas, I, it's a Christmas cantata by Kevin Williams. Okay. Uh, as, I don't know, it's not really that, it's not that at all. Kevin Williams is going to be playing Christmas music, leading the saints there in singing and playing some songs. If you're interested, what time does that start, Kevin? It's six. It's at six. So make plans to be there tonight. Um, uh, three other things. Two, well, two other things. Uh, number one, members meeting today, immediately after service, really five minutes after service. We're going to set a timer, go get your children, bring them down. We're going to have this last vote that we've been talking about as it relates to uh, the sort of dissolution of the legal entity that is our church upon the sale of our building. We're going to take that vote. And then uh, the other thing, the last thing is, if you've not reached out to an elder or had a conversation with one of the elders and you've let them know your plans as it relates to transitioning over to Alpine, would you please do that by today? We're trying to get a handle on the number of people who we have that is planning to come. And we've heard from about, I think the number was like 57% of our people already. Um, and so here's the thing. You, you telling us that you plan to come does not mean necessarily that you are sure about everything as it relates to you becoming a member of Alpine First. We hope that it will, but we just wanna know can we expect to see you there for the first little while and you're going to like try it out with us? Um, so, so just that, that is kind of what we're asking you to let us know. Again, I, I really hope that you all will be willing and, and, and excited about joining them because we, we are. But uh, I also realize that God leads different families different ways, that God has different plans for different families and that, you know, that, that there may be a church that suits the needs of your family better in your, in your opinion. I would just ask that you try. Just try it out for a season. Uh, I won't even put a number on it. Just try it out for a season and then and come and uh, make that decision. But we need to know, <clears throat> we need to know today if you're planning to make that initial transition over with us. Okay. Um, so just that can be a phone call. That can be a text message. Um, but if you haven't done that already, please make sure you let one of the elders know, like a yes or no. Um, anybody have anything else? Em? Okay. Women's gathering. Dirty Santa is what y'all are doing. White elephant. Whatever you want to call it. I'm just saying. Okay. We're just, hey, we're, Em's going to bring the hairbrush that I used yesterday, 800 strokes. There's at least 800 more left in its life. Anyway, um, okay, that's all I've got. All right, can we stand and pray for us and we'll dismiss. And then if, you, if you're a member, come, uh, come back in five minutes, get your kids and let's, uh, let's have a quick meeting. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your continued faithfulness and your goodness to us. Lord, thank you just that, uh, Lord, your grace and your kindness, Lord, that we've seen on display in the book of Ruth. Lord, thank you that, um, Lord, that this is a, 
or a picture of the gospel thousands of years earlier, Lord, this just highlights and celebrates your sovereignty over our life, over this world. Lord, thank you that it reminds us that you're in control of all things. Lord, let us to be with us as we go. Um, Lord, let us just recognize you. Let us behold you and worship you this week and everything that we do. In Jesus' name.